Good morning, Veritas Church. Good morning. My name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, and uh, this theme that these, this team back here has begun, we're going to continue on. It's, it's just, this morning's all about rehearsing, reaffirming, restating what is this gospel that we, that we hold to? What is the message of the Bible? What is, what is the reason that we gather like this? And, and why do we want other people to come and hear and, and uh, understand this, this good news, this gospel? And it's all about that, that mercy that we've just been singing about. So uh, if you've been part of our church family, you're aware that we've been going through the New Testament book of James after weeks and weeks, we've gotten all the way to chapter two. <laughs> like it's a pretty slow crawl, but so, so good and so rich. And we're going to be in James chapter two also this morning. So if you've already got your Bible open to James two, we're going to get there. But I'm, I'm going to start in another place in our Bibles as we begin. I'm going to start in the book of Luke chapter 18. Because in Luke chapter 18, there's a, a very familiar story, a parable that Jesus tells. And as I read it, I think you might agree with me. I wonder if James actually has this parable even in his mind as he's writing out James chapter 2. You know, James was a half-brother of Jesus, was around to hear these teachings. And I wonder if this particular parable really informed a lot of the stuff that we're going to dig into in James chapter 2. So listen to this really remarkable and, again, memorable story. Uh, Jesus is telling this, by the way, to some people who would come at Jesus and they'd ask him questions, normally not because they were sincerely asking to, to grow in their understanding of their faith. They wanted to trip him up. They wanted to trick him. They wanted to see if they could get him to slip up in some way. And that's, that's what's going on in Luke 18 as well. But, but here's what happens. Luke 18, starting in verse 9, it says, He also told this parable to some who actually were trusting in themselves, that they were righteous, and therefore, they looked down on everyone else. So here's the story that he told to that group of people that he had in mind. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. Oh, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even... Like this tax collector. Well, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything that I get. And you almost get the idea he could have gone on and on and Jesus mercifully like, okay, got it, got it, you know. And he's the one telling the story so he can do that, right? So turns his attention. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other. Because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, you hear the story and you might want to imagine that this is Jesus' opportunity to call you aside and put his arm around you and say, hey, come here, buddy, I want to explain something. See that Pharisee there? Watch out for those guys, right? He's got his arm around. He's like, watch out for those guys. Those hypocrites like that, you watch out for them. That's what you want to imagine. That's the point of Jesus telling us this story, right? In fact, here's what's happening. Jesus is putting his arm around you, pulling you close and saying, hey, see that Pharisee over there? 
That's you. That's you. The fact that we actually think the opposite of this story is really indicting when you look again at the very first verse. Here's what Jesus says, the reason he's telling the story. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were actually righteous and looked down on everyone else. You guys, the fact that we could read that story and be like, can you believe that Pharisee, right? Tells us that we're actually the ones that he's talking to. We're the ones looking down on the other people, even the people in this story, and thinking that somehow we're better. Showing <laughs> that we've got the real problem. And Jesus is trying to wake us up with this idea. We, all, all of us, have this idea. We get really quick to imagine, like, our conscience starts alerting us. Maybe there's a sin involved or something. And immediately we want to say, no, we're the righteous one. We're, we're the good one. In fact, I'm going to look down on everyone else to make myself feel even better. At least I'm not, you know, we start comparing ourselves. At least I'm not greedy. Le at least I'm not an adulterer. At least I'm not like this guy over there. And maybe you've got one of those guys near you that you can like the Pharisee. Just point at. At least I'm not as bad as that guy over there, right? That's our tendency. The other guy in the parable, note, note this, the other guy in the parable, I don't even know if he was aware that there was anybody else in the room. He had his eyes down. He was beating his chest saying, God have mercy on me. And it's really interesting that most translations do the same thing that this translation I just read from. They have, have mercy on me, a sinner. No, no, no. The way that it is and the way Jesus told it is, God have mercy on me, the sinner. There's an article before sinner. The sinner. Understand why that's important? He's saying, the guy. I'm not just one of a bunch. I'm not just on a curve here or something. No, God have mercy on me. I'm the sinner. I don't care who else is in the room. I don't care who else is sinning, whatever. God have mercy on me, the sinner. And Jesus says, well, that's the one, that guy that was justified, not the other that was bragging on himself, speaking about himself. God, look at me. I want to catch your attention. Look how I tithe. Look how I, you know, blah, blah, blah. Now, here's the warning, and then we're going to turn our attention to how James picks up on this theme in James chapter 2. But here's the warning that I want to give you. That same auto-defense mechanism is in your soul and is in mine. The moment, again, we start feeling some conscience, some, some uh, sin has become you know, evident to us, the first thing we want to do, well... At least I'm not as bad as, and at least I don't do this or that. At least, you know, I'm not hurting anybody in what I'm doing. Hey, I'm no murderer. So hold that thought, because that's where James is going to go now as we go to James chapter 2. So go to James chapter 2. If you remember, uh, Mark started us off last week with James chapter 2, 1, the first chunk of James chapter 2. And you know the whole theme of this chapter is favoritism, and James is uncharacteristically not popping around from one topic to the next, you know, like a ping pong match or something. He, he's going to hold on to favoritism here for a while. Look at the first couple verses again, just by way of reminder of where he's going with this. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. It's James 2. And specifically, by the way, he's going to be talking about favoritism that happens in the church. Because the second verse says this, 
For example, a man comes into your meeting wearing gold and, you know, dressed up real nice. All that. He, he's not talking about just what happens out there. He's saying, no, when you guys come together as worshipers like this right here this morning, this favoritism thing has no place in the church among God's people. It's normally what we do. James is trying to say favoritism. Here's what it is. We go into to even church unfortunately, and we categorize people in one of two categories. Either, oh, they're the ones that could help me or make me look good, or they've got something I want, or I'm enamored by who they are. And so I want to figure out how to sidle up to them, right? I, I want to figure out how to wiggle my way into their world. Or there's the other category, them over there. Those are the ones that, oh, they're actually not going to do me any good. They're, they're actually not going to, you know, help me at all. In fact, I'm kind of embarrassed by them. Kind of wish they weren't even here. So I'm going to avoid them or, or at least let them know, hey, you sit at my feet. You're kind of beneath me. So we have this, this instinct, step into a crowd, even the church. We start looking around and we, we find these two categories of people. That's favoritism. And understand from that very first verse in chapter 2, here's what he's saying. Don't show favoritism as you hold on to faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. He is saying that it is a fundamental denial of the gospel to hold on to faith in Jesus and show favoritism. These two things are in utter contradiction. You can't hold on to faith in Jesus Christ and show favoritism, there's a massive contradiction there, right? It's inconsistent with faith in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ to show favoritism. Oh, come on. Is it that big a deal? At least I'm not murdering anybody, right? That's, that's, our, that's our kind of default. And James wants to obliterate that automatic defense mechanism, right? Okay, maybe I show favoritism. Okay, everybody does. At least I'm not as bad as this guy. Whatever, okay. That's what he's going after. So here's what he says. Let's look at today's passage. Verse 8, James chapter 2, verse 8. Indeed, he says, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. I want to stop there just for a moment. Normally, we read the whole passage. I just want to take this bit by bit today because I want you to see how he's going to be building on this. Follow his train of thought, those first couple verses where he says, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law. In fact, I just want to reread it again. So short. If you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. There's the royal law. Well, then you're doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin, you're convicted by the law as a transgressor. Why does James call this the royal law? That's not a phrase that we've encountered anywhere else in the New Testament so far. What's he mean by the royal law? I believe what he's saying is this comes straight from King Jesus. That's what he's saying. This, this isn't just a misdemeanor thing we're talking about. This isn't some lower court that brought this. We're talking about something that came from the throne room, from King Jesus himself. And again, this is because James has heard Jesus bring this teaching from, you know, the royal throne room, I'm going to read from Matthew 22. Here's what Jesus has said. Once again, this context in, in Matthew 22 is somebody trying to trip Jesus up and, and make him say something that he'll regret. Doesn't happen again. But Matthew 22, starting verse 36, says this. This expert of the law has this question. Teacher, which command is the, in the law is the greatest? 
It's a whole bunch of laws, hundreds of laws. Which one's the top? Which one's the greatest? He said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. Now that makes sense to us, right? God, creator of all things, lawgiver. It makes sense that that would be the greatest, most important command. But then he throws this curveball at us. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. That word depend, it means they're all hanging on. Every other law literally is suspended from, hanging from, is dependent on these two laws. But it's not just love the Lord. That, that's, that seems, that, that won't make sense. But when he says like it, he uses this word this is to say it's of equal value. That, that loving my neighbor is myself. Imagine this. Shouldn't it be love the Lord your God? That's way preeminent. And then somewhere further down is how we treat others. No, Jesus does this remarkable thing. He says, no, 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 I'm equating these two things. They are equivalent. They are equivalent in authority. Even when he says greatest, most important, oh wait, and this one also is like it. It's of the same level of weight, authority, greatness, importance. And so James now with that in his mind, that royal law, love your neighbors yourself, he gives us this very clear conditional statement. Look what he does there in verses 8 and 9. If you're a royal law guy, if you truly love God and love other people purely as you would love yourself, you're good, okay? You're good. If you show favoritism, if you're a favoritism guy, he wants you to know boldly, you're a sinner, you're committing sin. And just in case we didn't get that word, he comes back again. You're a transgressor. <laughs> You've broken the law. And not just any law, not just a little misdemeanor, the royal law, a law that came from the throne room, that uttered from Jesus himself. You broke that law. It's really strong. And then just to make sure that we, we aren't missing what he's trying to say, because we're good at squirming out from under this stuff, right? We're already kind of like, oh, come on. Well, he's going to come at us again. Look at verse 10 then. James 2.10. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you're a lawbreaker. <laughs> now, you, you might look at that as like, this is so simple. Do you need to say this out loud? This seems so self-evident. Well, he does, apparently, because he's trying to hammer it home to us. Now, I, I do want to say one thing. Um, James is not saying that every single law or breaking of that law has the same consequence. Okay, even in our civil government, we realize that uh, jaywalking is against the law. Kidnapping is against the law. But that doesn't mean that they're of the same consequence or the same weight, right? That's not James' point. But James' point is very clearly this. It is to say you can't minimize your sins because you think that yours is somehow a better sin than someone else's, right? You, you can't all sin squirm out from other because you think you've somehow made your sins of lighter consequence and, and easier to take than someone else's sins. You can't get away from that, right? And don't miss this fact. James is putting the sin of favoritism 
in the same category as murder and adultery. Out of the same pen, in the same moment, he's talking about your sin of favoritism right up in the same category as murder and adultery. So why? You guys, we have to be asking this question, why is favoritism just rising to the surface of those things that that James wants to bear down on us about? The answer is found in verses 12 and 13. Look at these couple of verses. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's really important. I'm going to read those again as well. Speak and act okay, as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Oh, but those last four words. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Why is favoritism such a big deal? to James and to King Jesus, the one who gave the royal law. Because a true follower of Jesus Christ, one who truly holds on, verse one, holds on to to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If that's you, right, then you are supposed to be that guy back in the corner in that parable saying, God have mercy on me, the sinner. That's supposed to be you. And Jesus said about that guy, that's the guy who received mercy. That's the guy who, who actually, you know, went down to his house justified. He was freed. You know what I mean? To be justified. You're like, you're, you're freed. So he's back in the back corner. You know, I'm the sinner. And yet he found himself in saying that and admitting what was actually true and, and knowing that it, it didn't matter who else was in the room. It's all about him. He is the guy that got freed. He got justified. And so this law of, of freedom, of of, of mercy. And so now what James is saying is, if you're that guy who has understood just lavish mercy coming at you, you you've known what it is to beat your, your chest in, in, in conviction and guilt and condemnation, and now you're set free because of the mercy of Jesus, then you should, here's what he says in verse 12, speak and act as people who have received mercy, Right? Because people who have received mercy speak differently and act differently than those who have never touched or tasted mercy. He's saying, when you actually gather as a church, if all of a sudden you see some pompous dude walk in and, and everybody knows who he is and, you know, he's, he's this or he's that, whatever. You look over and you don't go, who's that guy think he is? Oh, man, he thinks he's... Nor do you say, oh, man, there's so-and-so. I want to get up close to him. I want to... No, you know what your instinct is? If you're somebody who has received mercy, you look over at that and you think, oh, Jesus, have mercy on him. Have mercy on him. Because you know what? I know what that's like to want to be the most important person in the room. I know what that's like to wish that everybody noticed me when I walked in. I, I know what that sin, oh, Jesus, will you have mercy on him? Will you, will you open his heart to the gospel? You have mercy, right? Because you've been shown mercy. Same thing, you see somebody very poor, somebody very marginalized, somebody that you know, doesn't match your standard, whatever, and you know what you do? Your instinct, as somebody who's been shown mercy, you say, oh, Lord, have mercy. Jesus, have mercy. In fact, could I be a channel of mercy? 
Could you use me to show mercy? I'm going to make my way toward that. I'm not going to be leave them on the margins. I'm going to make my way over and pull them front and center. Why? Because I want to be a channel of mercy. People who have been recipients of mercy or have received mercy speak and act as those who have received mercy. It changes everything. So this morning, here's what I believe. We are touching on like the aorta of the gospel, like the, the most like life-giving part of the gospel, and I, I don't want us to miss this. Super important. So here's what James is saying about the gospel. The first thing is this. You have to say out loud that you are the sinner. That's where the gospel starts. You are the sinner. Look, it's not enough to just think, oh, well, maybe God grades on the curve. I was just talking to one of our college students, and they had to take this test. It was really hard, and they felt like they did bad. And then he goes, oh, but it's not that bad because they grade on a curve. In fact, most people, the teacher already said, are going to be in the A and B category. You have to really be, like this whole grade on a curve. So we take that idea, you know, from our educational system. We impose that on God. Hey, at least I'm better than, and we start looking around. Like, hey, on the curve, at least I think I'm going to make it. No, no, no. Stop thinking like that. Stop. You are the sinner. It doesn't matter if maybe your sins are lighter in weight than somebody else's down the row. It doesn't matter if you're on a planet of sinners. It it doesn't matter. When you stand before the judge, you're not going to be standing there in this mass and say, oh, where do I get in this lineup? No, it's going to be you and the judge, and you are the sinner. That's where the gospel starts. In fact, if you don't embrace, number one, the rest of the gospel will mean nothing to you. You have to start there. Have you gotten to that point where you really do understand how dire your situation is? You've broken so many laws. He's just talking about in this, one of those, favoritism. Do you know how many times you are guilty that I have been guilty of favoritism? Think of how many others you've racked up if that one is so easily recognized in your life. So I'm just saying you've got to start right there. Lord, I'm the sinner. Which brings us to the second point that he's trying to draw us to. The judge is merciful. The judge is merciful. So much so that the judge chose to take your sentence. This is the beauty of the gospel. This is the outrageous truth of the gospel. Yes, you are the sinner. And the judge looks down and says, I'll take your sentence. I've read this modern day parable to you before, but I'm going to read it again because this this older gentleman when we lived in Los Angeles told this story and I'll never forget it. And it it tells this story so beautifully. Listen, Listen to this. He says this. Once upon a time in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a great king. He was simultaneously the most powerful man in the kingdom as well as the kindest and gentlest man in the whole realm. The kingdom was known for its peace, its its harmony, its goodwill. Neighbors really cherished one another. Years would pass without a single crime being committed. One day, however, the chief servant of the merciful king came into the throne room with ill tidings. There's a thief in your realm, sire. The king was astonished. Well, find the thief. And when you do, bring him to me. He'll be punished with ten lashes. Those in the room were astonished as well. It had been so long since a crime had been committed, they could hardly imagine who would be doing such a thing. 
So a week went by, and the servant again made his way into the throne room. I've got bad news for you, sire, he quietly reported. The thief has not been found, and he continues to rob from your people. In anger, the king raised his voice and said, find the thief. And when you do, he'll receive 25 lashes. The people began to murmur among themselves, who could withstand such a punishment? Who could possibly be committing this crime? As time went on, the servant once again came back into the throne room with yet another bad report. Your majesty, the thief has still not been found. We've searched in vain for him. Your people are still being robbed, and now the king is enraged. Find that wretched thief, and when you do, his punishment will be 50 lashes. Now the people were filled with dread. They were not even sure that the king himself could withstand such a punishment. And if he could not, then certainly no one else could. Who could be doing such a thing? Soon afterward, the servant again approached the king in his throne room, his face pale, his voice timid and hollow. Your highness, spoke the servant. The thief has been found. Bring him to me this instant, cried the king. The crowd that had poured into the throne room was slowly parting, revealing the thief who now stood trembling in the middle of the room to the utter shock and dismay of all. It was the king's aged mother. There she stood trembling, crying, her small and frail body shaking with fear and shame. She was perhaps the very last soul that anyone would have suspected of such a crime. There stood the king in shock, deeply wounded. The crowd began to wonder and murmur among themselves, what will the king do? Will he set aside the law and display his love and his mercy by just forgiving his mother for her crimes? Or will he display his sovereignty and his justice by giving her exactly what she deserved? Will he choose mercy or will he choose justice? The king raised his hand to quiet the crowd. Bring the whipping post, he said. The crowd was dumbfounded. Would the king truly have his mother receive such a punishment? Even the king could scarcely survive such a flogging. This frail woman would not even last a few strokes. The old woman was tied to the post. Her garment was rent, exposing her back to the whipmaster. Her, her ribs could be counted for her frailty. Administer the lashes, said the king. Not a sound could be heard as the whip was raised. But just as the whipmaster was about to unleash his first stroke, the king cried, halt! The crowd sighed in utter relief, but the feeling didn't last for long. The king stood from his throne, slowly removed the crown from his head, laying it upon the regal seat. As he began to walk down the stairs toward his mother, he laid aside his royal robe and his finely woven tunic. Coming to his mother, he wrapped his enormous body around her, completely enveloping her under his frame. And the king spoke, now administer the lashes. Thus in one act did the king display pure and perfect justice wrapped in pure and perfect mercy. The judge is merciful, which is why we get to the very third point of what this gospel message is as James brings it to us. Will you approach the bench? Will you approach the bench? Knowing first that you are the sinner, right? Knowing that, 
But knowing that this judge is merciful, will you approach the bench? Because when you approach the bench, here's what you're going to see. You're going to look up, finally looking down in your guilt. You're going to look up and you're not going to see eyes of, of, of anger. You're going to see eyes of love and compassion and mercy. And you're going to be almost startled by what you see. And then the judge is going to reach out his hand to you. And as he reaches out his hand to you, you know what you're going to notice? Scars on his hands. Because even while you were still sinning, Christ died for you. (laughs) He wasn't waiting for you to get your act all cleaned up. He wasn't waiting for you to become worthy somehow. His mercy is so great that even while you were still sinning, Christ had already died for you. And now he reaches out his hand Will you approach the bench? So I I don't know how how often you've gone to church or heard the Bible taught or whatever. I have to ask you this question. Have you gotten to that point in your life where you've been the one back in the shadows beating your chest because you realize like the weight of the world is on you? Because it is. Like you're the only sinner in the room. Have you gotten to that point? Or are you still looking around? Well, at least I'm not as bad as, you know, well, at least I go to church. At least I. Because I'm telling you, if that's still your posture, that one didn't get justified. That one didn't get freed. The one who actually found freedom, the one who actually found mercy, is the one that said, no, 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 I'm, I'm the sinner, and then looked up and saw the, amazing kindness and mercy and compassion of Jesus and reached out his hand and received it. So I want to give us a moment in prayer to take in this good news all over again. So will you, will you join me in prayer? Jesus, this news is astounding but this news only becomes good news if we will admit, Lord Jesus, it's like say out loud, I'm the sinner. Don't let me get away, Lord, with looking around and finding someone who's a worse sinner that thinks somehow I'm going to be free because there's somebody worse off than me. And in fact, Lord, bear down on me that that sin might be one of the worst sins on the whole planet. Help us to say what's right and then help us to find mercy, compassion. Jesus, when you died on the cross, it wasn't just to give a good example. It was to take our place. And when you rose from the grave, it was to be able to say, no, I've broken the back of of sin and, and death and judgment, and now you stand alive, reaching out through the ages, through even this magical book that we've got in front of us right now, to extend that mercy and compassion and kindness in the good news right here, right now. Jesus, I pray that some are finding that freedom, that beautiful freedom right now. Like, like, can feel the chains falling off, hear the door unlocked, feel the weight lifted up. May this be the moment, this day, right now, they are experiencing freedom of encountering mercy. And for all of us, Jesus, help us keep coming back to that same posture. Oh, Jesus, 
thank you, Jesus, for continuing to love me, for being so stubborn in your love that even when I come back again and again, you're there with compassion and kindness and forgiveness. Thank you, Jesus.